another episode of Good Old Mid. I'm your host, Theo Black, here with my co-host, Kimberly Black. And today, we have a, a, a kind of clue-like episode with a crazy band of characters <laughs> and, and, and some mystery around it. Oh, okay. This podcast discusses murders from the 19th century and the early 20th century, usually before 1920. We try to take things from a lighter angle, though, not to make fun of murderers or those that were victims of crimes, but a lot of times it's the story around the crime, you know, going from point A to point B. How did they get there? That part is usually where the funny parts are, and that's what we usually try to focus on on this podcast, not the murder itself, because there's nothing funny about murder. If that sounds good to you, you'll love this podcast. And if it doesn't sound good to you, I think you, I think you like it. So you know, just hang out for just a while. Just listen anyway. Yeah, just listen anyway. <clears throat> and if you'd like to be a part of the good old gang, be a part of the team, and you can reach us on all of our socials. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Good Old Murder, and then on Facebook at Good Old Podcast. And with all of that out of the way. Who's ready for a story? Let's do it. Let's get into it. We're going to go back. Back, 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 back. Way back to the year 1897. Grover Cleveland was the president. Fun fact, Grover Cleveland was the only president to leave office, then come back and serve another four terms. Oh, for wow. me, four years. So he was the 22nd and 24th president of the United States. Hmm. Roger Walcott was the governor of the great state of Massachusetts. Now on uh, May 18th, 1897, Irish Arthur Bram Stoker's book, Dracula, was published by Archibald Constable and Company in London. So Dracula came out in 1887 as well hmm. with Transylvania and all that. Okay. I saw a documentary on that one time. It, it was pretty interesting. It, it's an actual place. Hmm. Okay. It's the morning of November 4th, 1897 at a boarding house at 15 Corning Street in Boston, Massachusetts. Someone living in the house found 25-year-old Alice Brown in a very bad condition. She was dead in her room. The police were called in. The body was taken to the medical examiner where an autopsy was performed. The autopsy determined that Alice was strangled. Mm. She had seven finger marks on her throat, including cuts by fingernails. So somebody was angry yeah. and they was gripping their throat tight. Yeah. Initially, police brought three people in for questioning. Edward Hood, the proprietor of the boarding house, and two other men that shared a basement apartment, John T. Stowell and Thomas Hughes. They questioned them for a while, but then they were eventually released. The police had many questions as to who Alice Brown actually was. Nobody really knew much about her. There, there was very little known about her. She had only moved into the boarding house two weeks earlier. Mm. 
She was known to keep late hours and was seen in the company of several different men. Uh Uh-oh. When we first started this podcast, I don't know what was in my head about that time period, but I just thought, like, things was over when the sun went down because, you know, they didn't have electricity. Yeah. They didn't have lights, but... You thought, like, oh, when it's nighttime, it's dark, so everybody's in the bed sleeping. Yeah. No, that's that's not the case. You have night owls just like we have night owls now. Something I picked up from doing this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There was an older lover. He was over 60 years old. Wait, wait, wait. How old was she? She's 25. Dang. Yeah. He would visit her night after night, pleading for her to marry him. Oh, God. Of course, she would always refuse. Around 1130, the night of the murder, she was seen sitting on the front steps of the boarding house. She was with another man that no one recognized. They spoke with each other for about a half hour, but then he left. Mm -hmm. The person that seemed to know her best was William Levitt. He was a blind man known as Blind Billy. Oh, no. (laughs) He sold song sheets on, uh, on a street called Tremont Row. That was where a lot of people... In the 1800s, um, sold their goods. And by, by one newspaper's account, it was the Great Dry Goods Street of Boston. Okay. William told police that he had been awake smoking in his room, which was above Alice Brown's room, at 3 a.m. the morning of the murder. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, his door was open. He could hear Alice in the hallway talking to a man whose voice he didn't recognize. It was a rather long conversation. The man was trying to persuade Alice to marry him. The conversation William heard went something like this. No, I wouldn't marry you if you were the best man that ever lived. Uh The man asked again and Alice emphatically said no. Well, I suppose I might as well go then, he said. And Alice replied, yes. So she had a little, little, yes, little snap. You should leave. <laughs> William said he knew Alice's <clears throat> lover's voice, the older gentleman, and it wasn't him. Uh oh. William's theory was that Alice was murdered sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. There was a magazine found in Alice's room. It had the name Alice O'Brien scribbled on the cover. Hmm. Alice O'Brien lived at 15 Corning previously. Alice O'Brien was located and said that Alice Brown was somewhat reluctant to talk about her past. She really just kept herself, didn't really talk about the past. Mm -hmm. We in the present, you know, I don't leave the past where it is. She did tell her, though, that she grew up in a small town near Concord, New Hampshire. Her mother died when she was 15, and within the same year, she ran away. After leaving the farm, she settled in the city in hopes of a career on stage. While in Boston, she had visited, she was visited by lovers from her childhood. What? Yeah, people that knew her back then came to Boston to visit her. Lovers from her childhood. <clears throat> that sounds nasty. <laughs> Alice left New Hampshire. With another young lady, Hattie Belmont. She was a childhood friend. Alice, a brunette, and Hattie, 
a blonde were bells of the town. There's the reason that she had men coming from wherever she was from to visit her in Boston because I guess she was bad. She looked mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Romantic novels of the time gave them the idea to run away and they drifted between New York and Boston. They often worked as shop girls, but always kept the dream of living that life on stage. Of course. According to the Boston Globe, the rouge on their cheeks told only too plainly after a while what sort of lifestyle they were living. Mm. Whatever that means. You know, they used to say like women who wore like bright red were considered like hussies. Oh. So probably the shade of their rouge. Right, right. Their blush. Like, to me, um, what I'm getting from Alice is, like, she was, like, you know, uh, those Instagram Mm -hmm. models, those, you know. The same vibe, yep. Yeah. Like, oh, she probably worked at the mall, but wish she was an Instagram model or something like that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got, like, got a bunch of followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actual followers. Yeah, same vibe, same vibe. (laughs) Alice and Hattie were roommates at 15 Corning. That is until Alice got word that Hattie had been arrested and charged with undue intimacy with a married man. Uh oh. The man didn't get arrested though. Just, Why did they wait? Hattie. Wait, wait. That, you know what? Back then, that's that's how it was. Because I yeah. was about to say, oh no, right? It would not have went down like that. So Hattie was arrested, so they left her by herself in her room. That's crazy. That stuff like that happened. The police had no need for any of this information that people were giving them. They're like, this is not helping the case. They don't have nothing to do with nothing. (laughs) They were not able to find Alice Brown's family in New Hampshire. Another resident stated that letters to Alice were postmarked Amherst, Massachusetts. They believed that she maybe had been from there. The night of the murder, two people living on Ohio Street across from the backside of 15 Corning. So they ran parallel. Corning and Ohio ran parallel. So this was the backside of the building. They reported hearing muffled screams between 4 and 5 a.m. Mm. A resident of 15 Corning also heard a scream, but no one else in the house did. This made police suspect that someone in the house was covering for the killer. There was no sign of forced entry, and the only way through the front door was with a latch key. And Alice's latch key was missing. Mm. The newspaper at the Times were eating this mystery up. So this was all all in the paper yeah, every day. Yeah, I bet it was. On November 6th, a man from Lynn, Massachusetts, who was visiting Boston with his wife, reported that he overheard a loud conversation on Tremont Road. He heard a blind song vendor say, she can't try that on me. She can't try that on me. I'll fix her. Oh, God. At the time, he was speaking to another man that matched the description of James McMillan. James McMillan was the 62-year-old man Mm. who was always asking Alice to marry him. Uh Uh-oh. The police looked all over the city for James and found him in Haymarket Square around 1.30 the next morning. He was known to be obsessed with Alice. He said he is the reason that she moved to 15 Coring 
trying to get away from him in hopes that he wouldn't find her again. So oh. she was living one place, so she moved and hope, you know, I'm not going to tell him and maybe I could get away from this dude. And he found her anyway. And he found her again. Jeez. Psycho. James lived on Tremont Street with a woman named Sadie Hart. He was married. She was an intimate friend of Alice. Oh, I was about to say. James told the police that Slate Sadie went to Alice at the boarding house and asked her to join them for supper. He also said that he had known Alice for 10 years. So he said, we go back. He been, I've been asking her to marry me for 10 years. Oh, goodness. Alice did indeed stop at the house that night of the murder, but left at 10 p.m. Both James and William denied the conversation that happened on Tremont Street. They were like, nah, I don't know nothing about what that was he was talking about. I never, we never had that conversation. Several other witnesses came forward and newspapers printed all of their stories. A man claimed that he saw Alice at around midnight on the night of the murder dining with a man at a cafe. She left with that same man. At Coring Street, a strange man came with a message for Alice Dewey, room three. The landlady, Miss Hood, told him that there were three Alices there, but none of them was Alice Dewey. Hmm. She also informed him that the one living in room three was dead. The strange man continued and said that he had a message for from Harris Goldwyn, a waiter at Parker House. But when he realized he was in the murder house, he left without giving any more information. Mm-hmm. Once he realized where he was at, he just dipped, stopped talking. Yeah, I ain't getting in that. The Parker House denied ever having an employee named Harris Goldwyn. What? A former lover of Hattie, Alice's closest friend, said Hattie's name was really Alice Wall. Wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. The two Alices became friends when they were in jail together. Oh, God. <laughs> Both were pretty girls, but a little crazy. He believed that they left Boston for New Bedford, but police could find no trace of Hattie, Alice Wald, or Alice Brown. A man from... Amherst, Massachusetts, came forward to say he believed the dead girl was his sister-in-law, Mary Rutherham. What? She lived in Amherst, but was sent to jail. He could travel to Boston to identify the body. Oh, gosh. The Boston Globe described the man who overheard the conversation on Tremont Row as not a visitor. He was John Hay. Kerrison, a reporter for a rival newspaper. Mm-hmm. Police said that they trusted him and agreed to withhold his identity, but they also said their com- their reason for arresting James had nothing to do with the alleged conversation. They just arrested him on something else. Oh, it didn't have nothing to do with the conversation. The next day, James was released. Now the focus of uh, was on identifying the gentleman that she saw last seen with at the cafe. Mm-hmm. The police arrested Blind Billy for the murder of Alice. What? Mm-hmm. Jack Wallen, another resident of 15 Coring, came forward with another story from the night of the murder. Oh, goodness. His room was directly above Alice's, 
and he could hear everything from the room below. He was also awake around 3 a.m. and heard noise coming from William's room, who was on his floor, the blind guy. Mm -hmm. He opened the door and saw William going down the stairs towards Alice's room. Oh, goodness. Not long after, he heard a scream, a muffled scream from a woman. Then he saw William coming up the stairs, headed to his room. Right after he heard the scream. Oh, goodness. William had been on the police's radar for a while now. He was eager to give the cops information and seemed obsessed with the case. Of course. He always talked about the case. He also had new information about the case all the time. Alice O'Brien said that William was on a list of men who would not leave Alice alone. William often made bold statements and often entered her room uninvited. He just walked on in there. Oh, my God. After getting William out of her room, she told Alice O'Brien that William was a bad man. Uh-oh. William also had a record. <laughs> the blind man got a record? Yep. <laughs> blind man got a record. In New York and other cities, he traveled extensively before coming to Boston and served time in Blackwell Island for petty offenses. It is also said that he was not actually blind, but had excellent hearing. He ran with thieves and lowly women. It's reported that he previously spied for the police or anyone that would pay him. Oh, my goodness. On the same day of Blind Willie's arrest, Alice Brown was positively identified as Mary Alice Rutterhand by Miss Lucy S. Brown. She was employed by Lucy's as Lucy's domestic servant. When she saw the name Mary Rutherhand in the newspaper, she decided to see if the dead girl could be her former servant. Mm-hmm. Miss Brown remembered Alice as a lovely girl and trustworthy. That all changed when she caught Alice smoking cigarettes in her room. Mm. Alice moved out soon after and stole a gold watch when she left. <laughs> she took she did take their last name though, also. Yeah. William thought the whole thing was some bullshit. He he, he declined cancel. Wave examinations, but he still wanted to explain the situation. Mm-hmm. It's said that he was still talking when they let him out of the courtroom. So he was in court just trying to talk, and they were like, bro, go, go, get out. <laughs> we done. <laughs> William was held without bail. William was well represented as he appeared before the grand jury. His attorney stressed that he had no motive for killing Alice Brown. While it was true, she would paled his advances there was no evidence that he was strongly jealous so the marks on her neck were made by someone with long fingernails and William bit his off to the quick that's how they say it yeah they did to to the the quick quick. (laughs) (laughs) the only witness against him was a resident named Jack Warren who everyone at 15 Corning called Happy Jack because of his mental fortitude. When the sharpest knife in the Happy Jack. When the sharpest knife in the draw. The grand jury decided that there was not enough evidence yeah, there isn't. to indict William. 
No one else was ever charged for the murder of Alice Brown. That's crazy. It is known as Boston's greatest unsolved mystery. That's crazy. And that, my friends, is the the kind of clue-like story of the murder of Alice Brown at 15 Corn Street in Boston, Massachusetts. That, that's crazy. It, it just has so many characters in it. Yeah, that was like, a lot of people in So that many one. people like, yeah, yeah, I seen this. You know what? I seen this at that time. That's how I, they, I, saw I mean, but too. that's all they had to go on back then. There weren't like, like camera, street cameras or dash cams and none yeah, of that stuff. Yeah, so. exactly. I think like, no fingerprints, none of that. Mm-mm. So they just had to go off what people said. And if somebody was dumb enough just to lead a murder weapon or something, but if the murder weapon was hands, then, you know. Yeah. Unless they had it on them, it would they wouldn't be able to even say, "Oh right. yeah, I found the bloody knife. It looked like your fingerprints." Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> you know, yeah, the knife was in my room, but I didn't use it. Right. You know. Yeah. So it like back then it was a lot harder to prove a murder or a murder case. So, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I I mean I know this is one of the shorter stories or shorter stories that we do, but that that story was just so insane to me i just had to do it so yeah that was that and if you like that story you know how you could let us know get on apple Podcasts, leave a review and five stars that would really help out the show and you could follow the show wherever you're listening right now And if you'd like to be a part of the good old gang, look at some pictures from these episodes and be more in depth and more involved with what's going on with the podcast, you could always reach us on our socials. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at good old murder and then on Facebook at good old podcast. I'd like to thank you for giving us this time and lending us your ear and look forward to having you right here next time for another amazing episode i'm theo black and i'm kimberly black and this is good old murder